0: Dr. Alan Leica here and I'd like to welcome you to How to Live a Fantastic Life Show where we will be discussing the important aspects of your life. We hope to inspire you to live the best life you can. Get out of your comfort zone and explore the awesome world around you. Break through your barriers. Take inspired action. Use the difficulties in your life to achieve the best version of you. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have not one, but two special guests, Ronnie Titchener and Jenny Weaver, who are sisters who weren't supposed to be friends. They grew up in a very nasty setting, a home where there was addiction, abuse, and mental illness, and were often pitted against each other. Now, drawing on their personal and professional experience, they are telling their story to raise awareness about childhood trauma and to help others move into recovery and heal their sibling relationships. Welcome, you two.
1: Thank Thank you you so so much. much.
0: So who wants to start into the story of your journey?
1: Oh, I'm the oldest. (laughs) I usually get to go first. <laughs> and the
0: wisest, I'm sure.
1: Yes, of course. Thank you for noticing that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, so to tell our story in brief, uh, we grew up in a home, as you said, with addiction, abuse and mental illness, and we were those dynamics typically cause, uh, or the dynamics associated with those, those experiences typically cause very predictable patterns in families. So fear, denial that there actually was anything wrong in the family, uh, such that it took us until we were well into our twenties to realize that we hadn't grown up in the close, loving, warm, happy family that we had been told all our lives, told ourselves all our lives we'd been uh, living in. And we were both thrown into roles, which are also pretty predictable. homes with those kind of dynamics. So I was the oldest and I was the hero. I was the one who was supposed to uh, be a super achiever and bring lots of glory to the family. And I served as a distraction in that if anybody ever discovered something wasn't quite right in our family, they could say, well, look, we got this kid over here. That's really great. Does all this really wonderful stuff and there can't possibly be anything wrong with us. And then Jenny was cast as the scapegoat which is another very common role. And that's the the person, the child that the family dumps all its psychic garbage on. And they say things like, you're a mess. Uh, you, you need to get your act together. And if you could do that, then we'd be just fine. There's nothing wrong with this family except you. You are the problem.
0: Okay, now, Jenny, I want you to go into more depth on this. And I'm not doing this for any other reason in that other than the fact that there are other families out there that are dysfunctional. And there's other children out there that are suffering right now. And there's other adults that went through this and haven't gotten to the place that you two are. So I want to Uh, you to tell me more about that situation, maybe some of the pain you went through so that we can live it for the others that are out there.
2: Sure. So growing up in a family with addiction and abuse and mental illness, and with those dynamics of being forced pigeonholed into roles that you play, it, it tends to isolate the children even from each other living under the same roof. You are pit against each other. Um, as part of those dynamics. And so being the scapegoat, the um, the identified mess of the family or patient of the family, um, I felt that very, very keenly. I was a very intuitive, very empathic child. And so some people call that highly sensitive. Uh, and so I, I grew up trying to figure out what, what I was doing wrong. I was constantly doing something wrong. I was constantly made to feel like I wasn't good enough or I, I just was Wrong, and so I I tried to figure out how to please people. It it caused me to to be a people pleaser, and and that's that's a a really lonely and miserable way to grow up. Um, You're isolated from each other within your own home. You're made to feel like you're not right, Um, and you never. No matter what you try, you're never going to be right. You're never going to be okay. You're never going to find that approval that you so deeply crave. And it's it's a very lonely and very painful way to grow up because your whole identity is wrapped around trying to meet these ever-changing rules and expectations that, you know, what what was okay yesterday may not be okay today. And it really depends on if that um, addicted parent or, or, or mentally ill parent or abusive parent needs an, an outlet for their anger. And, being the scapegoat um, you're a good target for that anger and so i i was with with regularity on the receiving end of verbal emotional physical abuse because i was being told over and over again uh, my dad's favorite phrase was what the hell's the matter with you and and so when you grow up that way you just never feel comfortable in your own skin
0: yeah, that, that's definitely the case in a lot of these families. And it definitely is true in families where one parent or both parents are dealing with a lot of these things. Uh, quite often, the father is the problem that has addictions. And quite often, the mother has either mental illness or is submissive. And that leaves the children at the brunt of the attacks. It, was that the case in your family? It was pretty much.
1: Yeah. Except that our mother was also capable of being both physically and emotionally abusive. She was, as, as you were suggesting, in many ways, trying to run interference. She was trying to keep us quiet and keep us in line so that it, my father's rage would be held in in check. Right. She didn't she wouldn't want us to aggravate and annoy him. But she also was uh she would rage and uh, be abusive as well. Yes, definitely.
0: Yeah. You know, from a male point of view, I've been reading and listening to a book by Richard Goggins, who went through it from a male perspective. And he wrote a book called Can't Hurt Me about the experiences that he had as a child where the father was abusive, the mother wasn't abusive, but he had to own it in his life and take responsibility for it in order to grow out of those things. Uh, is that, was that the turning point for you?
2: For, for me, um, I, I had to, I had to recognize that I was in a lot of pain. I'd been struggling with depression since the age of eight and with repeated thoughts of ending my life. Um, and so I wanted to know why I was feeling this way, why I was um, repeatedly in relationships that were one-sided, where I was doing all the giving and, and not receiving, or, or where I was being put down, if not physically attacked, verbally attacked. Um, and so I, re- I recognized that there were patterns um, and I wanted, I wanted them to change. So it was it was the the years of mounting pain that just had a cumulative effect. And I knew that I wanted a better life. And so that's what caused me to go into counseling on my own to try to figure out how to live a better life. And that was the beginning.
0: Well, the other What what was your turning point?
1: I was going to say the other turning point, which and I think I can speak for Jenny on this as well, is that when we married in our early 20s and started having children within a few years. So by the time we were in our late 20s, we were very concerned with how to be good parents. And this is going to sound sort of silly, but up until that point in time, Jenny and I hadn't really talked a lot with each other. One of the other hallmarks of the kind of family that we grew up in is very dysfunctional patterns of communication. And one of those uh, therapists call triangular communication. And that is where all the information runs through one person. And they do that to try to keep a lid on everything, to try to keep control. And in that household, that was our mother. And so as we grew to adulthood and I started to leave home and my siblings followed suit, we still were not, we were living physically far from each other. And we were not talking as siblings directly to each other. All information flowed through my mother. And then my mother would tell us whatever she wanted to about the other. And so that was one of the ways she kept us pitted against each other when we were even adults. But when we became parents and we had children roughly the same time frame, we were very concerned about being good parents. And that's when we started to reach out to each other to talk about, hey, my daughter's doing this. What about your daughter? And And that led us to talk about what happened to us as children. And it really was a series of conversations when we first became parents that led us to realize what we wanted to do and didn't want to do. And then we started to name the things that happened to us as actually abusive and harmful. And it was our desire to be good parents that really drove us into recovery and drove us to dig deeper and deeper through, as Jenny said, the pain to figure out what happened to us so we could fix it and not pass it on.
0: Now, the other thing that you quite found out is that you two were put in roles that were adversarial, that you were put mm-hmm. in a fighting role against each other. How did you start to overcome that?
2: I would like to just jump yeah. in on that. We really, it, it really started with, it kind of came to a, to a, a really, incredible weekend where Ronnie invited me to come up to visit with her with my daughter who was eight months old at the time and she was teaching at her alma mater with and her daughter was with her Uh, and it was it was during that that meeting I was really struggling with a lot of depression postpartum depression but also my parents were were really working on me uh, at the time trying to talked me into divorcing my husband who was overseas in desert storm. And, and it was just a a daily barrage of how i ruined my life. And so it was during that visit that we, that it was like the, it was like the veils came down, you know, the, the, and, and we broke the silence and Ronnie said, well, Jenny, you're the identified patient in the family. And, and just, we just started talking about the alcohol abuse. We weren't talking, calling it a, you know, alcoholism, and we we weren't quite there yet, but we started talking about all of the dynamics in the family and the different roles that that each of us kids played. Um, and it was it was a truly miraculous and healing weekend. And we made a pact: we are going to start talking to each other directly. We realized that our mother was controlling us by by insisting that we talk to her and not each other, and and we started realizing that there were some. Lies that were being told during that weekend as we were comparing notes. And that was when we decided, okay, we have to talk to each other every week and we have to start being here for each other. And that was really Ronnie's commitment to me to help me through that incredibly difficult time. And that was, that's it just snowballed and accelerated from there as we started talking to each other and sharing our parenting wishes and desires and wanting to make our lives better. It, it
0: just became better and better from there. Yeah. And Ronnie, do, do you want to exemplify that? Do you want to say some more on that point?
1: Sure. I think that that what was really important about that is that, you know, we talked earlier about the dynamics in homes with abuse, addiction, and mental illness. Denial is the central one. There's nothing wrong here. You're not hurt. There's nothing bad happening. And so you live with that. So we never Mentioned, as Jenny said, we didn't label our father's drinking alcoholism. We didn't label what happened to us as abuse. Our parents still refer to what happened to us as spankings, um, and when they were beatings with my father's belt. Uh, so we we went from moving out of that denial was fueled by the fact that we talked to each other and we could say things like I re- I have one memory in particular I I was sharing with Jenny I said. This is the way I remember it, but it couldn't possibly have happened that way because it's just so cruel. How could they have done this thing to me for this reason? And she said, oh, no, I remember that. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly how it went down. And so having each other to validate those memories, as Jenny said, really accelerated our healing process because otherwise I'd be by myself going, am I nuts? Am I misremembering? Am I making things up? That's why one of the things that we're so uh, excited about getting out and telling our story is, is to let people know the benefit of doing this work with a sibling, someone else who can provide that validation for you can have corresponding memories and assure you that you're not crazy. And it was as bad as you, as you think it was.
0: So I, I want you both to think about this question because it's important. What exactly does it take to break the cycle of intergenerational trauma? Who would like to go first?
2: I think it takes, I'll jump in. I think it takes the desire to, to make, to make a change to, you want to live a different life than what you were brought up in. I knew I did not want to marry a man like my father. I knew I did not want a marriage like what my parents had. I was I was very aware, even even though the the dynamics in our family were so painful, um, I still loved them. But I knew I did not want to be anything like them, and and that's what motivated me. I I knew that I saw other relationships, obviously from a distance, from the outside, um, other other families that appeared more joyful that laughed together that, you know, and other relationships that used humor to diffuse tension. And, and I wanted that I knew, I didn't know exactly how to get there, but I knew that I knew that I wanted something different. And, and that's where counseling helped tremendously for me um, as well as other healing modalities that we talk about in our book. Um, but having Ronnie as, as a, as an ally I just can't emphasize enough how important that was in helping
0: helping us to heal together. Huge. Ronnie, your turn.
1: So the other piece of that, in addition to what Jenny said, is I would say you need to educate yourself. So we, in the, in the beginning, read lots of books and we both pursued individual counseling. We both went to 12-step support groups like Al-Anon and Adult Children of Alcoholics. So you need to know what you're up against and what you're trying to unwind. And then- especially in the beginning, honestly, there is no substitute for the daily slog. And one of the things I write about with my experience is that it it was hard. It was very hard for me in the beginning because I felt like trying to do things differently, like I was coming apart. Because part of my identity as the hero was I developed this this, uh, perfectionism, right? Everything had to be perfect. I could never be wrong because when I was wrong, I could be physically or emotionally punished. So I had all this stuff to unwind. And, and in, internally, so there were times when I didn't say the first thing that popped in my head or I didn't follow my instinct for my behavior. I said, okay, what's a healthier choice? And I would do something differently, but it just felt hard. It felt sometimes wrong to do a healthy thing as opposed to follow that ingrained pattern. And I um, frankly, at times just felt like I was coming unglued inside and nobody knew it because I was trying so hard to look and be okay on the outside. So it can, when you're doing something new, Even if it's positive, even if it's recovery from a terrible experience, it can feel really, really hard. And so we want to be honest about that with people, that it's not like you just wake up and say, okay, I'm going to break the pattern. I'm going to break the cycle. In those first few years, probably, I would say it was a real internal struggle almost daily to, to try to rethink and unlearn and, and, and create new patterns. It gets easier over time. That is also true, but in the beginning it feel like a real difficult
0: struggle. That's huge. Now here's the next question. What would you like our listeners to take away from your story?
1: I think uh, I would just reiterate one of the things I said briefly earlier, and that is that if you are trying to recover, please, please, please reach out to a sibling. If you think they would be at all receptive because there is and there's absolutely no way I would be where I am today or who I am today without my sister without her partnership without her there to validate and support me. We should also say that we have a brother in between us. There's not even 3 years between Jenny and I in age and there's a brother in the middle and we were not successful in in um recruiting him to come on this recovery path with us. So it's not to say it's all sunshine and roses or that it's easy. And certainly it's very unusual for the hero and the scapegoat to become friends. Typically they are, if not lifelong enemies, they're at odds and they have a very difficult relationship because they've been pitted against each other so successfully.
0: That's huge. And I think that that's very important realizing that there is help and for you two, it was sibling, but for others, I think they could reach help with a counselor and other people in their lives that can help them through that.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. It the, the thing about growing up with addiction and abuse and mental illness is that you are so isolated, you are conditioned to isolate yourself emotionally from people. So developing close friendships where it truly is a give and take and opening up type of friendship has been difficult for me. Um, I, have, I have a small circle of, of people that even know that anything happened you know, in my past. Um, and, and there's a reason for that because disclosing can be frightening um, and, and you may be rejected. There's still quite a bit of don't talk about it, don't tell um, in our society. And so there still is a lot of shame that is that is put on children like us you know that grew up in these homes that we were the we were the innocent ones and the shame of the abuse and the addiction and the mental illness and all that was not ours to carry but we have carried it and and that's really part of coming out and talking about this is to try to help others understand that you know it's not it's not their shame to carry and that absolutely counseling is a is an excellent place to start and and these these wonderful groups that Ronnie has mentioned adult children of alcoholics and um, there are many support groups that are a great place to start uh, sharing your story and and being supported um, in a healthy way
0: that's huge anything to add to that Ronnie
1: no I think that's I think that those are the basics for getting into the early stages of recovery uh, I would just say that for us we found that, that only brought us so far in our healing and so we once we had kind of understood intellectually mentally emotionally what happened to us and kind of worked through some of those really strong early emotions we started to work on the spiritual wound uh because it this kind of abuse derails you it it, it changes who you are and so we've spent most of our recovery process now trying to figure out well who was i going to be or who am i really now and so, developing practices that allow us to be still, and to uh, kind of get that inner sense of that in the messages right from within about what we should be doing next. So, practicing yoga and meditation, for example, uh, we've just spent the last you know several decades following whatever seems like it might have something to tell us about our healing journey and how to how to become more fully who we really are. And so that's That's another piece of the recovery process. Yeah,
0: that's huge. Well, you two, this show is called the how to live a fantastic life show. Now, I want you each independently to tell me how you currently live a fantastic life.
1: Well, I guess I'll start uh, by saying that one of the things that I'm doing to live a fantastic life is embracing change. There's been a lot of change in my life. I've had a move geographically. I'm about to shift in terms of, of my work. Jenny and I are certainly doing more of this work together. And just recognizing that change is not a bad thing. It's definitely inevitable. So embracing it is good. And certainly we've seen a lot of really good change in our recovery that's brought us more than we could ever hoped for.
0: Huge. Jenny, your turn.
2: I would say that being all of who I am, um, I'm no longer hiding. Uh, I am no longer living in shame. I think writing this book together with Ronnie really helped, um, helped us to release another layer of that, of that shame. And, and, that, and it, it really did feel like a huge weight was lifted off our shoulders doing this together and, and really fully accepting all of who we are, what happened to us, our past. And, and all the joy that we are pursuing in our lives now, all our interests, um, there's just so much to explore and, and enjoy in life. Uh, ballroom dance classes, for one. You're never too old to take ballroom dance classes.
0: <laughs> huge, huge, huge. I love that. I'll have to see your ballroom dancing someday. Love to see that. Oh. Okay. Uh, now. How can people find out more about your world and where can they get a copy of your book? And please name the book for everybody to find it.
1: Sure. Our book is called Healing Begins with Us Breaking the Cycle of Trauma and Abuse and Rebuilding the Sibling Bond. And it is available on Amazon. You can get a print version, you can get an ebook or an audio version. Jenny and I did the audio version. Um, you can follow us on Instagram. We're Ronnie and Jenny, R-O-N-N-I underscore and underscore J-E-N-N-I-E. And in our bio there, there's a link to all the things we've done. So interviews, short articles we've published, our podcast. So we have three seasons of podcasts. So if you want to hear more about our story, you can start at the beginning because we start at the beginning in telling it there. So those are all options.
0: That is wonderful. I can't thank you enough for being on this show. I was really looking forward to this when I looked at my schedule today and found that you two were on it. So I really looked forward. Thank you so much for oh. sharing.
1: What a joy to be with you. Thank yes, you. are for- so kind. Thank you. We've had a wonderful time.
0: And, and ladies and gentlemen, if I can be a further assistance to you, please check me out. Dr a-l-l-e-n like a l-y-c-k-a dot com. And if you go there, I will give you a golden pearl a week so that you can enhance your life right at the start. Bye for now. Have a fantastic day. You've been listening to How to Live a Fantastic Life. Be sure and pick up a copy of Dr. Lika's book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life on amazon.com. And you'll want to subscribe right here on this page so you don't miss a single episode.